feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. You know, it's hard to, it would be hard to sum up any better in the Bible what is the mission of God's people to declare his praises among the nations because he is the only true and living God and to declare his praises among the nations because the, the, the gods of the, the nations are vain idols. As Psalm 115 says, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have ears, but they can't hear. And those who worship them become like them. So we declare God's glory among the nations out of compassion for the nations so that they would know the true, the one living God because those who worship him become like him. Because he is the living God, he can make those who worship him to live. Well, if we're to declare his glory among the nations, we have to first meet his glory. We have to first encounter his glory. We have to first experience it. And so uh, tonight, tomorrow night, and then on Sunday morning, I'll be speaking to you from John's gospel because John's gospel tells us that's what his story is all about because we're told that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. In fact, you can read the whole of John's gospel as what I call the glory story because in this man, Jesus... The people who met Jesus, every single individual that met Jesus, came face to face with the glory of God. At Mount Sinai, God said to Moses, no one can see my face and live. But John's gospel begins by telling us, this one, he has come from the very bosom of the Father. He's come from a face to face relationship with God and is now revealing the glory of God. What Moses pleaded with God to see, but, but God only let him see from a distance, the apostles witnessed to in Jesus Christ. And through the word of the apostles, we see what Moses didn't get to see. We see the glory of God. In fact, as we'll end this evening in looking at another verse that, from Paul, we behold the glory of God in the face of Christ as the one who has reconciled us to the Father and the one who, in whose image we are being transformed day by day. And so I thought it would be appropriate, if we're supposed to declare God's glory among the nations, to bring us back into contact, a renewed contact, a renewed encounter with the glory of God through John's gospel. And so uh, <clears throat> the theme of what we're doing uh, tonight, tomorrow night, and Sunday, at least for my part, is uh, looking at the glory of God and the church's mission. And I'll tell you what's next once I see it on my computer. Um, and we're going to do that initially by looking at John chapter 4. We're going to look at um, how John tells us the story of the glory of God when a woman, we know as a Samaritan woman, meets the glory of God. 
because, as I said, John tells us in the very beginning of his story that we have beheld the glory of God in the incarnate one. Tonight, we're going to look at this woman's meeting with Jesus, and we're going to see how she encounters the glory of God in an intensely interpersonal way. Tomorrow night, we're going to look at the same story, but we're going to look at it from 35,000 feet instead of from ground level. And we're going to see how expansive and universal the glory of God is that is revealed in this very same encounter. This is a story you can read over and over and still, still somebody once said about John's gospel, toddlers can wade in it and elephants can swim in it. And so we're going to perhaps do a little bit of both. And then Sunday morning, we're going to look at the very end of John's gospel. And if you like fishing, anybody here like to fish? then uh, we're going to have a fishing story at the end of John's Gospel that will tell us more about what our mission is. So that's our plan tonight, the intensely interpersonal glory of God. Tomorrow night, the expansively universal glory of God. And then Sunday morning, the powerfully prevailing glory of God in Christ. So let's begin. The glory of God in an intensively interpersonal way in John's Gospel. And if you have your Bibles, you'll enjoy keeping it open. I'm not, simply, I'm not going to simply read through the story uh, because it's a long story and because it's a familiar story, uh, but I am going to be touching on uh, various parts of the story as we go throughout. As we prepare to read of this woman's experience with Jesus... Uh, I'm operating under a thesis that God's purpose in Jesus Christ is to cause, to, is to cause people to encounter the glory of God in a life-giving way. When we meet the glory of God, we'll, thought, we'll see just as this woman, we don't meet the glory of God just for ourselves. But we, when we encounter the glory of God, we receive a life that is to be given away to the world. And the reason uh, this story is appropriate, and the reason because we're beginning with the intensely interpersonal glory, is that missions must begin with and proceed from personal encounter with the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm going to say that again. Missions must begin with and proceed from a personal encounter with the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we're speaking about a person we've never met, or we're speaking about a person that we perhaps remember having met, but are not so well acquainted with today. To be effective and faithful in missions, we have to constantly be renewed in our own encounter, in our own personal encounter with Jesus. Let's look then at the first four verses of this story. Uh, we're going to learn a little bit about the Samaritans on the way. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So this is not an American suburban church story, church story where one church starts growing quickly and they just keep taking members from the other church. 
Jesus sees no advance or no advantage in that, but more than that, probably, uh, Jesus is very sensitive to timing. Uh, he knows the time of the Father. In fact, when Mary, his mother, asked him to make more wine at the wedding in chapter 2, what did Jesus say? My hour has not yet come. So Jesus is very sensitive to timing. He knows that uh, there are things he must do and that there's a timing of God for the things of God. In fact, in chapter 11, when it's time for the crucifixion, he says, the hour has come, what? For the Son of Man to be glorified. So Jesus is sensitive to timing. He doesn't want uh, a premature arrest. He doesn't want a premature confrontation with the religious authorities. And so he leaves. But he doesn't just leave of necessity. He leaves as part of, uh, at least of, uh, of human necessity. He does leave because of divine necessity. Reading on from verse 4, we're told, or verse 3, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And I think I have a map here um, that will show this a little bit. You can see down at the bottom is, uh, by the big word Judea, is a small word Jerusalem. And that's uh, the area in, in which Jesus was at, at the beginning of this chapter. He's in Judea. And because of his growing popularity and because of his sensitivity to timing, uh, he heads north toward Galilee, uh, where uh, he also did a lot of ministry. You know, the Sea of Galilee and, and uh, Peter is from that region. Uh, but we're told in verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, we're going to learn in a minute why this is a problem. But you see, if you're going to go from Judea to Galilee and you want to take the shortest route, that Google Maps is going to take you through Samaria. And so there is a geographic necessity. Now you'll read, and sometimes you'll hear Bible teachers say, well, normally Jews would not go through Samaria, and they would actually go out to the east over the Jordan River and go up through, the, through that territory and then enter back across the Jordan River up in Galilee. Uh, there's an ancient uh, Jewish historian named Josephus who says that wasn't exactly the, the norm. It was, it was common. It wasn't unusual for people to take the direct route from Judea to Galilee. But to say that Jesus had to pass through Samaria is not just a geographic necessity. As we're going to see, it is a divine necessity. Because Jesus will say to the woman, the hour is coming and now is where the Father will seek worshipers. So Jesus is conscious, conscious of a divine clock at, which, at the striking of which will mark the moment of God the Father seeking worshipers from among all peoples. In other words, the beginning of the missions program. It's in this very story. Now, this is a problem, though. Uh, and as we'll uh, see here um, from a, a few items, uh, it has to do with who the Samaritans are. What do you know about the Samaritans? I'm sure there's some Bible students here who've had more than that one hour of training that Rob talked about. What are some, some things you know about the Samaritans? 
Any, any guesses or any impressions? They're a mixed breed people. They're a mixed ethnicity. They were looked down upon by Jews. In fact, the woman says, why are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan? What are some other things you might remember or have the impression of? That's a pretty good start, pretty good summary, except, you know, not one to spare details. Let me give you a little bit more. Um, after King Solomon, Solomon built up such a tax burden that after his death, there was a struggle over the kingdom of Israel. And the, the northerners uh, didn't like having to send all their tribute, all their offerings, and send all their people down south to Jerusalem to worship. And so there was a split in the Old Testament between the northern kingdom, which then gets the name Israel typically, and the southern kingdom, which is Judah. So you've got resentment over political tensions at the beginning. And then, and then to keep people from going, having to go down to Jerusalem to worship all the time, Jeroboam, who was a successor to, Saul, uh, to Solomon in the north, he, uh, he, he builds two churches, and he puts a golden calf in each one. He says, you don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. You can just come and worship in these churches up here in the north. Some of you southerners are saying, yeah, that's what Yankees do. <laughs> Not only did he build these two, um, and I do have a map of this, you can see Jeroboam's two golden calf worship sites. One is up in the north at a place called Dan, and the other is down in the south at a place called Bethel. And so you can see he's provided equidistant and convenient one-stop worshiping so that nobody had to go down to Jerusalem. Nobody had to be loyal to the place that God had chosen for his name to dwell, Deuteronomy 12, or to the kingship of David, which God had promised to give David and his descendants forever. So not only did Jeroboam do that, but he set up a lot of other worship sites, and he put sacred pillars, which would be like idols. And, uh, and the people learned to worship other gods and to fear the other gods besides Jehovah. And there was a commandment about that, if you remember. It's the first one, actually, that exclusive loyalty to God, the true God, Israel's God, Jehovah, was of first and uttermost importance. And over time, the Samaritans boiled down the Bible to uh, only the laws of Moses, because there's a lot of stuff about idol worship that is uncomely in other parts of the Old Testament scriptures. And they even cut out parts of, of the books of Moses so that they have a shortened Bible that doesn't condemn the things that they do. So you have religious tensions, you have political tensions, religious tensions. They did claim legitimacy up north because uh, they had the well that we're going to read about here. It was a well that Jacob had... Um, had dug when he first uh, settled in the promised land. Uh, and they had connections with Joseph. So they, they did have a legitimate claim, uh, at least a thread of legitimacy, but they, they departed from the ways in which God had directed his people in his word. Now, this results in the northern kingdom going into exile well before the southern kingdom because their corruption was so deep. And the Assyrians, <clears throat> who took the northern tribes into exile, they had a plan 
that was uh, not uncommon for empires of their day. They would take the, the best and the brightest and the most influential people and they would take them away to another place and they would bring people from other places they had conquered to resettle the land that had been vacated. And you can imagine there the ethnic tensions that would arise. In fact, uh, uh, in 2 Kings 17, there are about five different ethnicities from other countries that are brought in to settle the, the, nor the, the, the northern uh, territories of what once was Israel. In fact, some have suggested that the five husbands of the woman that we meet here may symbolize even the five nations which went into Samaritan ethnicity. And so the Samaritans were generally despised by everybody, Jews and non-Jews alike. And this often resulted in open conflict between Jews and Samaritans. Open, believe it or not, there was, there was a ethnic conflict in the Middle East back then. Nothing new under the sun, King Solomon said. And so Jesus <clears throat> meets a woman who doesn't have a lot to stand on, but what little she has to stand on, she stands on. She says in, uh, where is it, in verse uh, 9, how is it the Jew, Jew asked me for uh, a, a drink? Let's trade. Oh. You're getting lots of feedback or something. They seem nice to me. You mean, oh, you mean feedback from the sound system. I wonder if it's because I had the antenna wrapped around my back. Probably not. Okay. I think we're getting some interference from something else. All right. Rob, are you downloading first mill? Is that the, you given interference? Third mill. First mill was a while back. By the way, so glad, glad to be here with Rob. I, one of my great privileges has been to... Um, be invited over to Third Mill Studios from time to time to, to help answer some questions. And so uh, I haven't watched all the videos to find out how much I made it in there, but I've got quite a stack of DVDs that I'm in there somewhere. Uh, and uh, so probably next time I travel to another continent and meet some pastors and so forth, they'll kind of do this because they saw me on Third Mill. Third mill? Did I say first mill again? Oh, okay. So let's look at the story a little bit for, in a few details here for just a minute. I'm trying to coordinate my... By the way, this is a, a little bit of a depiction of what the Assyrians did. The, the solid lines are, Jew, are, are, nor, are, nor, are Israelites being taken out. The dotted lines are other peoples being brought in. Uh, so you can appreciate visually what's going on. And um, sh the woman said to Jesus in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And now she's referring to the, the mount, mountain on, on which the city of, of Samaria is built. And after uh, a few centuries, there actually was a large temple built there. Uh, which was, uh, again, part of um, 
trying to keep people from having to go down south to worship. And uh, she meets Jesus, as I said, at this well that what she refers to as her father, Jacob, having dug. You can read a little bit more about the Samaritans, by the way, in, um, I believe that's 2 Kings 17. We won't take time to read it now, but you get an idea of the process of what was going on. Uh, A good way of summarizing the history then between Jews and Samaritans, you have a history of slavery because during the time of the split between North and South, the Southern Kingdom was putting in Northerners into forced labor to continue Solomon's heavy tax burden. There was nationalistic rivalry uh, between the kingships of the North and the South. There was doctrinal heresy in the North. Uh, There was ethnic impurity after the time of exile. There was religious syncretism where they had incorporated the worship of other gods and the worship of Israel's God, and ultimately also political conflict, which then uh, can summarize in 2 Kings 18, they feared the Lord but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from from among whom they had been carried away. So that gets us up to speed on who this woman is that uh, Jesus encounters. So let's walk through the story for uh, for just a few minutes so we can appreciate the encounter. And I'll just explain some things on the way. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For And here's a parenthetical comment from the author, John, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So right away we have to appreciate there are a number of, number of social conventions that are being violated here. First of all, a Jew speaking to a Samaritan and asking, asking politely for that matter, for something. So a Jew speaking to a Samaritan violates a a social custom. But secondly, a a, a, a Jewish male speaking to a Samaritan woman also violates a social custom because normally a man wouldn't approach a woman publicly in this way. And she is aware of that. Why do you ask, you a Jew, for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? There's her resume. She is a woman of Samaria. John is telling us, this is a woman who does not normally have social standing or privilege with someone like Jesus. And Jesus' answer to her was to offer her something better than he had asked of her. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who is it that is saying to you, give me a drink, drink," you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water, living water. And we're going to talk about what that means quite a bit more last night, or tomorrow night. (laughs) Um, Last night would be first millennium. 
So he promises her a kind of water that is different than the water that she would draw from the well. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? You see, she's now invoking her religious legitimacy, what little there is, by reminding him that she, as a Samaritan woman, traces her lineage at least back to Jacob. She's not very bona fide, but if she's bona fide, it's because she has a heritage from the patriarch Jacob. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, you know probably there's a difference between a well and a spring. A well has a more passive or latent source of water. A spring is one that has an abundant source of water such that water comes out of it. A well has to be drawn from. Jesus is promising her a spring of water, something even better than a well. He's promising her something better than even Jacob had given to his descendants. She says, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. The the, the woman is, as we read back in verse 6, it's the sixth hour of the day. Now, if you start at 6 a.m. and count forward, this is high noon, hottest part of the day. Not the time of day where people would do strenuous work like drawing water. Why would a woman come out alone to a to a public place like this where there's probably no one else around at this time, well, we're going to find out some things about her that probably tell us why. She was a woman with a social stigma. She had been married multiple times, and she was living with a man to whom she was not married. She was a kind of woman that would be not only stigmatized, but ostracized in her day. And so she comes to the well at a time when no one will see her. But by doing so, she's very vulnerable, isn't she? If somebody does find her, there won't be anybody else there to help her. She could easily be vulnerable to attack, assault. She's not someone who obviously wants to be there in the heat of the day, vulnerable to somebody who might assault her. She would be glad not to have to be at that well at that time in light of the promise from Jesus for a better water. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right. (laughs) In saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, And the one you now have is not your husband. Now, let this sink in for a minute. Uh, There are all kinds of rules under the, there are all kinds of laws that are designed to protect women from arbitrary and unjust divorce in the laws of Moses. Deuteronomy 24 has an example of that. Because if you've been married and divorced, uh, then you're, you're, you're not fresh goods at least not for an eligible, qualified man. 
And uh, those of you who've been through divorce, you know, the whole, I have friends, uh, relatives, you know, the whole, the whole thing about getting out there again is just is really, really challenging, even if you want to do it. This woman, you imagine her, the level, the value of her stock. Maybe with the first man, it was okay. But something happened, so now with the second marriage, is her stock rising or falling? The third husband, again, divorce. The fourth husband, again, divorce. A five-time loser when it comes to marriage. And now she's not even able to convince the man she's with to marry her. Now, all kinds of things happen in life. Some of them happen because of (laughs) what we do. Some things happen because of what other people do. But the circumstances don't necessarily care whether it's all our fault or somebody else's fault. My wife's an educator. She works with single parents. Single parents who are poor because the parent who left is not supporting the family. Um, Children who have gone through the foster care system and been adopted by people that, that, that were strangers because their biological parents took no interest or had no capability to raise the child they had brought into the world. Uh, this woman, uh, perhaps by God's grace, doesn't have any children or perhaps as a sign of God's disfavor, doesn't have any children because, you know, in this world, children were seen as a sign of God's blessing. So she is at the end of a very long and a very hard road. In the middle of the day, drawing water. The man she's with has made no promises to her. And probably in in her world, her social status is nil and her vulnerability is high and her safety net is non-existent. She is on the margins of the margins of the world in which she lives. And Jesus tells her the whole truth about that. He doesn't say it doesn't matter what you... He doesn't up front doesn't say it doesn't matter what you tell me. Let's just talk God. He rolls out her resume. Because this is what the gospel does. The gospel unfolds not only with the resume that we would show others, it unfolds the resume of our hearts, of our own uh, failures and sins. Jesus laid it all out there in a subtle, gentle, but truthful way. And she realizes because he's told her something about him herself, she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. So now I'm going to ask you a prophet question. This is like the seminary professor comes. I got a seminary professor question. She meets a prophet. I have a prophet question. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you, being a Jew, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So the implied question is, which church are you supposed to go to? In Jerusalem or in Samaria? Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. You, you sense the irony or the, 
or the, 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 the subtle double meaning here, not just believe what I'm saying, because he's going to ask her to believe in him. Because to trust his words is to trust him, isn't it? He says, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Is the answer A or B, Jesus said, C, <laughs> neither. Because, of his, because the clock is about to strike. The, the, the clock that is about to strike is the clock that strikes the hour in which everyone will worship God the Father in the same way. You worship what you do not know. Plain truth. Your revelation is corrupted and selective. And you only hang under the threads of the scriptures that uphold your legitimacy in the world, of your faith and your ethnicity and your nationality. You worship what you don't know. You worship wrongly. We worship what we know. We have the oracles of God, the books of Moses, the prophets, the history of the kings, and the Psalms. But we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But notice he doesn't say salvation is for the Jews. He says salvation is from the Jews. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here. You can hear a cosmic clock striking even as Jesus said these words in a very lonely place to a very marginal woman. John's gospel kind of ends this way with Mary Magdalene at the open tomb and no one else around. Well, the, the hour of worshiping as one people in the one and true God strikes and is revealed in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with another marginal woman. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And here I'm going to ask you to take your pen out and change the words in your Bible. No, you don't have to. You can think about it. But I'm telling you this. It's not, a, it's not an opinion. It is a fact. When Jesus says worship in spirit and truth, it should be capital S, spirit. And your, tra your Bible translations will say that in the footnote. It'll say, maybe it's capital S spirit. Well, the fact is, the word spirit, anywhere around this verse that appears in John's gospel, is the Holy Spirit. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you're born again of the Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And often people misunderstand this verse when it's small s. They think, oh, it means to be sincere when you worship God. To worship God in spirit and in truth means to be sincere. The Old Testament said you had to be sincere. Jesus didn't have to come live and die for us to know that you're supposed to be sincere when you worship. Jesus is saying a day, an hour of the spirit. And we're going to talk more about what that means tomorrow night. Has arrived. And the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. You see here, seeker worship. You know what? Have you heard the term seeker worship? Seeker worship uh, means you do everything you can to get people to come to your church. You know, meaning, and you have like clown dunk tanks out front. You can dunk the pastor. Um, think about that one. I'll, I'll, I'll come back for that one if you do it. 
They're not very secure. I'm but there is a true seeker worship. It is about the Father who seeks worshipers. See, we worship a Father who seeks worshipers, just like we worship a shepherd that seeks, seeks lost sheep. And the first worshiper found in this new age of the Spirit is the Samaritan woman. God is Spirit, capital S. And those who worship Him must worship Him in the Spirit, capital S, and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. <laughs> okay, you're a prophet. You're telling me this stuff. When Messiah comes, he'll, he'll straighten it all out. And Jesus, in effect, says, wait no longer. I who speak to you am he. And by the way, in the Greek, this is a little, this, it's not obvious, but if you're familiar in John's gospel with the so-called I am sayings, where Jesus uses the word I am to speak of himself, which is a reference to what? The Old Testament, when God spoke to Moses, he said, tell them that I am has sent you. When Jesus uses the I am statements in John's gospel, he is claiming to be the very one who spoke to Moses, who revealed the glory of God to Moses. Well, the disciples come back. They find it curious he's talking to this woman. No one asks him what he's doing. But the woman, verse 28, left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Now, if you and I met somebody who told us everything we ever did, <laughs> we'd be creeped out, first of all we very likely would not find that a favorable thing. I mean, after all, you know, Edward Snowden, is that his name? You know, is in Russia because he wanted to tell us everything that the government knew about us. I'm just not trying to be political there. I'll just retract that statement. But, you know, we worry about big government. We don't want, we don't want, people, we don't want big data knowing everything about us. They do anyway. And yet here's a man who told a woman everything she ever did. And for her, it was good news. It was good news. What's the difference? It's because of the one who knows. And when we think about the intensely interpersonal way in which we encounter the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, you know, it is, it is a terrifying thing for somebody to know everything about you who is ill-intended toward you. But for somebody to know everything about you who is well-intended for you, who says, I know the plans I have for you. It's good news. So she is the first missionary in the age of the Spirit that has now arrived And she is, for every non-Jewish believer in Jesus, the mother 
of every Christian. We can stop there. There's more to the story, but I want to make sure we take time to apply it. Um, we've read of the divine encounter, and now let's begin to aim it back toward ourselves. And to do that, I want to give you a little lesson in a subject I call Sisternology 101. And what I'm referring to by that is Jeremiah chapter 2. In Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah is announcing the inevitability of exile because God's people have broken covenant with him so persistently, so severely, that exile will come. And in Jeremiah 2 verse 11, Jesus, I'm sorry, God says through Jeremiah, has a nation changed its gods even though there are no gods? But my people have changed their glory, which is God. He was the pride of Israel. They have exchanged their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is what God's Old Testament people had done. They had the fountain of living waters. They had the rock that traveled with them through the wilderness, where they drank whenever they were thirsty. A never-ending flow. They had the presence of God in Jerusalem. The psalm says there is a stream which makes glad the city of God. And yet the living water that dwelled among them, God in His glorious spirit enthroned in the temple in Jerusalem was not enough. And so they dug their own cisterns. This woman had dug her own cisterns. She had... For whatever reason, we're not told uh, whether she was not attractive, whether she did not believe herself worthy, whether uh, she was not related to the right people, uh, whether or not, whether she was simply overly ambitious and controlled. We don't know the reasons. We don't know the motives. But we know that she was a serial marrier seeking something but not finding it. And that's what we do. You see, we have, to, we have to identify with this woman if we're to encounter the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. We can't say, well, isn't it great how God saves trashy people like her? We have to identify, we have to see in her. And this is where we have to do our own sisternology. <laughs> We have to ask, we have to look in our own hearts, what Calvin called, John Calvin called the idol factory of our own hearts. Because idols aren't made in, uh, at the seashell factory down in North Fort Myers or at the pottery barn, wherever the pottery barn factory is. Idols are created in the human heart. And we trust in things that cannot satisfy us. You know, I sat with a student on Thursday. He told me last spring, he said, 
pastor, that's what he calls me, he says, I know you have a daughter um, uh, a few years older than mine. He says, my daughter is dating a boy who says he's an atheist. And he's a nice boy, he's smart, but I know the heartache, the, the disappointment, the life she'll have if she stays with him. He says, I don't know what to do because I want to love this boy, but I also want to save my daughter from being unequally yoked. And when we talked on Thursday, the daughter is still dating the boy. And I said, you know, I think I want to call a friend of mine and ask her to write her story. That she married a man who didn't believe in God. And she lived faithfully with him and was a faithful and loving wife for his, their whole life together. But their whole life together was spent with her spiritually alone in the most intimate relationship that human beings can have. Why did she do that? Because she thought, he'll provide for me a good living. And maybe he'll come to know the Lord. She didn't believe in her youth that God would provide her a better life walking by faith in his commands. So she hewed a cistern. And it left her spiritually alone her whole life long. But we can't just pick on women because it would be so easy just to say, look, this Samaritan woman, she had a moral problem. She had no shame, but glad Jesus cleaned her up. You know, she really is every person. What kind of cisterns do men dig? Men tend to dig different kinds of cisterns in some ways. Uh, the same ones in other ways. We, some of the systems, cisterns that we tend to dig ourselves are professional accomplishment. We will leave our families before the sun is up and not come back home until the sun is down. And we never, will never see our children except when they're sleeping. All in the name of providing a good living. But really it's for ourselves. Our children would rather have uh, less meals out and a father at their dinner table than a father who can afford to buy them meals out all the time. Men, bit, bit, dig, uh, men dig cisterns by emotionally cutting themselves off, by not sharing what's on our hearts, by not, sharing, by not opening our emotional lives to others, whether it to be male friends or to our spouses if we're married. Each one of us in our own unique but common ways digs wells that cannot hold water when the source of living water that will never run dry offers himself freely to us. And so we have to become skilled not simply at knowing the promises of God, but knowing the, the imprisonments that we make for ourselves that make us need his promises so well. And Jesus offers her, and he offers us, in this experience, in this encounter with him, a divine endowment of a well, a water, a spring that will never run dry. We'll talk more about that tomorrow night. But another thing that's happening here, and I'll go fairly quickly for the rest of our time uh, together, we find here a marriage made in heaven. There's, I'm not going to get into it in too much detail. I don't want to scandalize anybody. But the conversation between the woman and Jesus about water is a little bit suggestive. Especially if you're her. 
If you look at the Proverbs and the Song of Songs about the, what water is a metaphor for, you'll see it often has to do with marital relationships, sens- even sensuality. Jesus enters her frame of reference not to embrace it, but he clearly has empathy and understanding of her situation. But there's more going on here. This story should sound very familiar to you if you know your Old Testament. Do you know any other stories that sound similar to this? I'll, I'll give you the big, the, kind of the big contours. A woman is at a well in the middle of the day, and she's in a vulnerable situation. And the hero of the story shows up and helps her get water. And when he does, she runs home and tells her family about this man she met. I've just talked about Eleazar, who's a surrogate for Isaac, meeting Rebekah. I've just talked about Jacob meeting his second wife, Rachel. Uh, You know, there was the complication of the sisters there. But anyway, that's how Jacob got his two wives. And I've talked about Moses meeting Zipporah, the daughter of uh, Jethro in the wilderness of Midian. All three stories have, if you, if you wrote out, some of you who like to study literature, you could write down all these similarities and you could see all the boxes checked between them. And they're all checked here. Now, obviously, Jesus doesn't propose to her and end up marrying her. But there is a marriage of sorts that's happening here. Marriages have been coming up in John's gospel. The first wet miracle, it almost slipped. The first miracle in John's gospel is where? At a wedding. That's chapter 2. In chapter 3, John the Baptist said, Hey, I don't mind all this attention Jesus is getting because the friend of the bridegroom rejoices when the bridegroom comes. You see, we've, we've, we've got this thing building in John's gospel that the bridegroom of Israel has arrived. The groom is in the house. <laughs> well, because of the way John has written about this story, I'm fairly confident in my conclusion as a, as a New Testament scholar. Now, you can't argue with me about it, right? I'm pretty sure this is what's going on, that Jesus is announcing not simply that he's the bridegroom of the Jews, but he's the bridegroom of the Samaritans. This bereft woman who's put her hope in men all her life only to be disappointed now has met a man who will never disappoint her. And more than that, she introduces her family to him. She goes back to her village and tells everyone about this man she's met. This is a marriage made in heaven. And you know where this goes in the rest of the New Testament, right? That Christ is the bridegroom of the church, the bride. And we see in the, in the book of Revelation that the whole people of God, the people of God as a whole, are the bridegroom who come forth from their chamber ready for her marriage day when the Lord returns again. So it's a marriage made in heaven. The mission of the church must begin with an intensively interpersonal encounter with the glory 
of God in Jesus Christ. This is where Christian missions begins, at the well in Sychar. And you and I, starting there. Because if we set out on the missions task without an encounter with the glory of God and the person of Jesus Christ, it will be just one of those activities that we do. It will be a sanctified lodge. It will be a sanctified sorority. It will be a sanctified chamber of commerce unless it begins with a personal encounter with the glory of God like this woman experienced by the well in Sychar. And so that's why I wanted to begin there tonight. If we went on to talk about global missions and about how we can serve the task of global missions, if we jumped on a bus for Nicaragua, is that where you all go? My son, I know you don't go on a bus. (laughs) That'd be a long trip. Uh, (laughs) My son has been to Honduras and a similar uh, uh, venture for the last four summers. It's changed his life. I have been to Buenos Aires, to Johannesburg, to Rio de Janeiro, Sao Paulo, Almaty, Kazakhstan, and other places in the world to try to enhance and promote and facilitate the work of mission. But if it doesn't begin with a personal encounter with the glory of God and the person of Jesus Christ, it is not the mission of God that will prevail or the mission of God in which we can be sustained. Um, The encounter with the divine glory exposes our own broken cisterns. And we've, we've talked about that already in many respects, but one way this is very important to the task of missions is we don't look upon other cultures as inherently inferior to our own and that we recognize our own cultures, our own context, our own lives are as broken and impotent as any other in the world. So we go not as great helpers to bless those who are less fortunate than we, but we go to share the same liberating and empowering good news that has touched our own lives. And this helps us to enter empathetically to encounter empathetically the futile, fervent, and frenzied world, not just in other continents, but in Port Orange. Because as we do, we begin to see the broken cisterns all around us, as well as within us, not just places far away, but places nearby. One of the great benefits and blessings of going to other cultures to share the good news of Jesus Christ if we begin to see how broken and needy our own cultures are. And Jesus didn't enter into this encounter judgmentally. He entered into it truthfully but empathetically. And we have to speak to the world's captivity to sin sympathetically and understandingly rather than judgmentally. Uh, I mentioned Kazakhstan. I've spent a good bit of time there. And my daughter, this is a story I'll close with. My daughter uh, took a year off when she was a student at Yale. And uh, she decided to go to Kazakhstan as as a missionary. But not to the capital city, which actually has the internet. She ended up in a village seven hours east of the capital city, about 100 kilometers from the Chinese border. 
If you know that part of the world, you know there's a Muslim minority in Western China called the Uyghur people. Anybody heard of Uyghurs before? The bombing in Thailand a couple months ago was actually related to the Uyghur problem. The Chinese are very, very uh, hard on the Uyghurs, first of all, because they're ethnically different than the Han Chinese, because they're Muslim culturally and religiously, and, uh, and because they want Western China for the Han, they've been really hard persecuting the Uyghurs, uh, and hundreds of thousands have crossed the border into Kazakhstan over the last uh, several decades. And so eastern Kazakhstan has a significant Uyghur population. They're Muslim background people. My daughter went to live in a home with Uyghurs, speaking Russian, reading her Bible with a little 12-year-old girl saying, why do you read your Bible every day? Can you read your Bible? Because for a Muslim, not everybody is allowed to read the Quran. And you have to read it in Arabic to really be able to read it. And it's just so many. Are you talking to? Why don't you pray during the hours? And Rachel said, I can pray all the time. I do pray all the time. And, and it was an amazing experience for her in a lot of ways. But one of the highlights of the whole time there was she got to go to a Uyghur wedding. And so I asked her to tell, just write down what she had told me. Here's what she said. A Uyghur wedding is a multi-day affair, and I was there on the second day at the bride's house. The groom and his friends arrive at the bride's home, but the house is locked, and the way is blocked by the bride's family members. The groom must use his charm and gifts to get into the house and find his bride. And she said, that this is what she called bride and seek. And it's all very theatrical, and everybody is on board with what's going on. And in the wedding ritual I saw, the key to the front door will be on the bottom of a water jar, which the groom has to drink before he can get the key. Then he had to bribe the aunt of the bride with fake American money. And he got into the first door, and he had to hunt for the key to the next door. It was on top of the door frame. Finally, he found it. I think there was a grandmother, an old babushka, who was standing in the way, trying to wrestle him, keep him out. And he had to get in without tumping the, we say tump where I come from, tipping over the babushka on the way in. It would be terrible to fracture grandma's hip on the day of the wedding, wouldn't it? And everyone is behind the groom, pushing, shouting encouragements as he's going around the house, looking in all the rooms and the closets to find his bride. Finally, he found her in the very back room. And when he found her, everyone spilled out into the street and a traditional Uyghur dance broke out. And after a while of dancing, the bride and the groom leave for the groom's house. Everyone else stays behind for the party. <laughs> one for the men, one for the women, she said. And the bride has to cry as she leaves, <laughs> pretending she's sad that she's leaving her mother and that she'll miss her family when she is not sad at all, really. Bride and go seek. The hymn tells us, doesn't it, from heaven he came and sought her. 
to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought her, and for her life, he died. We have a father who seeks worshipers, and he sent the son to seek and to save that which was lost. And because we were once lost, but now have been found, we can begin to declare the glory of God among the nations. Tomorrow night, I'm going to take you on a little bit of another Old Testament tour, and we'll see what kind of result God intends and anticipates from his seeking worshipers in this way. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for these patient and attentive listeners to whom you have given a desire to declare your glory among the nations. We pray that our time together would increase that desire. Um, And we also pray, Lord, as we look at our mother in the faith, this woman who met Messiah in a lonely place, that we would go back to that place where we first met him to understand anew how he has taken away our broken wells and given us a fountain of living water which will never run dry. May that spirit, that fountain, empower us, motivate us, and enable us to declare your glory among the nations. For we pray it in Christ's name, our bridegroom. Amen.